0: mypatriotsupply.com dot com
1: Resolute Square.
0: Stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Oh, the
2: women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortion.
0: Oh, On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not right-wing conspiracy. It's not QAnon. It's real.
2: <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is the Enemies List. Our guest today is Errol Lewis. If you live in New York, you know Errol. He's the host of New York One's Inside City Hall and New York One's You Decide podcast. This week, we're going to talk about Errol's new podcast, which is called The Last Liberal, about the history of one of the most fascinating figures in American politics, Mario Cuomo. Errol and I have known each other a very long time, and I am looking forward to, to getting into some New York politics with him today. Thanks for coming on the show, Errol. Thank you. It's been a minute, but uh, we have known each other for a long haul now. I would say it's been it's been a it's been a couple of decades now.
1: There's been a lot of punditry. That's true.
2: <laughs> a lot of a lot of punditry under the bridge. So first off, I want to talk to you about one of the most fascinating characters in American politics in the modern era, uh, and you are just out with a brand new podcast series on Mario Cuomo called "The Last Liberal." And I want to talk to you about why you chose to do this. Folks who are maybe a little younger than us might not understand how much of an influence he had on the way the Democratic Party operates and, and how New York operated for a very long time. So tell us a little bit about the podcast and, uh, and, and about, uh, about Mario Cuomo. Oh, sure, sure.
1: Um, look, this, was, uh, this year, 2023, is the 40th anniversary of Mario Cuomo being sworn in and taking office as governor of New York. He then served for three terms. Uh, There are a couple of things that are distinctive and remarkable about him. First of all, three terms is pretty long for New York. More to the point, we call it the last liberal because he really represented values and a style that are almost unknown in politics now. And he came to the fore as a FDR, New Deal, sort of great society, Lyndon Johnson liberal at a time when the country was shifting. This was right before this is really in the midst of the Reagan revolution that was about to kick into high gear in 1994, with uh, the Republicans taking control of the House, and he basically lost office in that wave. But uh, for a moment, he sort of stood in the breach for liberals and offered one last really eloquent statement of values that were uh, being challenged and in some ways discredited across the country. He really was like sort of the last liberal. And then also, Rick, this is somebody who only ran for office for the first time when he was 42 years old, had a bunch of kids. Successful law practice. Did not want to be president or governor from the time he was five years old. By any means, he's the son of immigrants, and uh, it's it's an entirely different style of uh, of eloquence, of uh, of strategy, of thinking about the public good. I thought it would be good for people to to see it and maybe reflect a little bit as we go into the presidential election.
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's very true. And look, he was a guy I didn't agree with ideologically. But as a speechwriter and a communicator, I was in awe of Mario Cuomo. He was a guy who understood the power of language, rhetoric, great speech making, great writing. And he became this very persuasive kind of figure uh, among a lot of folks in the the Democratic Party, even those who were to the right of him. Even a guy like Bill Clinton was influenced by the rhetorical style of Mario Cuomo.
1: Well, this is exactly right. I mean, this is the before the internet age. This is um b- before sound bites, this is before social media. Uh this was somebody who learned r- rhetoric from uh the 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 Catholic scholars that he trained under. And so he had a real gift for for metaphor and for imagery mm-hmm. and for the play of language and rhetoric in like sort of the formal and classical sense. Uh and he deployed all of those skills. And he, you know, he would joke about the fact that uh, you know, he wasn't ready for the TV age, uh, he, that, that he was pretty good with words, uh, but that he was nobody's idea. You know, he had a face like Ro- Yogi Berra, you know, uh, he, he wasn't
2: somebody yeah, sort that, of hang dog,
1: <laughs> not quaffed, you know, not blow dry. This was a guy who he, he, and by the way, he was a guy who on principle, he shined his own shoes. I mean, mm-hmm. he did not want anything about the glitz and glamour of modern politics, so much so, Rick, that after he left office he as far as i know is the only one out of like 55 governors who never sat for a formal portrait to hang in the hall of governors in the state capitol. just wouldn't do it he thought it was but it was self indulgent he just he just wouldn't do it even when he was uh an ex governor so um a, a different kind of a guy and a very interesting one
2: so he had three successful governors races and there was a period of time when a lot of democrats in the country looked at looked at Cuomo as a potential presidential candidate. Tell us a little bit about that sort of the, the the Hamlet on the Hudson story that kind of defined the back end of his of his political operation or his political campaign.
1: Well, OK, well, let's set the stage. In, in 1984, as Ronald Reagan is running for re-election as president, the Reagan revolution is in full swing. Conservatives like Rick Wilson have been winning race after race all over. Uh, And and, um, at the Democratic National Convention in 1984, out in California, Mario Cuomo gives uh, one of the keynotes. And as we know, those keynote speeches are where you sort of preview what's coming, right? That's mm-hmm. where Ronald Reagan delivers a famous speech. That's where Barack Obama delivers a famous speech. When they're sort of on the wings, you know, they're kind of in the on-deck circle. Right. Mario Cuomo gets one of the best speeches ever delivered in American politics. And it's it's phenomenal. It's just amazing. He, he doesn't even stay for the aftermath, goes straight to the airport and flies back to Albany, New York. Uh, but but it's, an, it's an incredible speech. And it sort of puts him in the on-deck circle. And so then in 1988, people say, hey, is he going to think about running? And he doesn't run. And in 1992, they think about, hey, is he going to run? And he doesn't run. Um, but it, it really comes down to the wire. Hamlin on the Hudson. It's, um, it's late December 1991. The f- literal last mm-hmm. minute of the filing deadline it entered the New Hampshire primary. He has a plane, really two planes, idling on the, the tarmac at Albany Airport, one for the press, one for him. Uh, he has the $1,000 check, the filing fee all made up. And then he takes to the microphone and says, you know what? I'm not going to do it. We've got <sighs> pressing issues here in the, in the Capitol. And I swore to help New York. And that's what I'm going to do. He, he he lets the cup pass.
2: It's one of those fascinating, like woulda, coulda, shoulda moments. Just as I think a lot of people in the political press were, were watching that very closely and anticipating it, you know, without that decision, Bill Clinton would not have won in '92. I don't think. I, I don't think Clinton would have beaten him in a primary uh, in '92. And, and I don't think you would have had. Weirdly, therefore, you probably wouldn't have had the 1994 Republican takeover. It's it's a very strange counterfactual to wonder like just where history would have ended up if. If we were in a slightly different timeline,
1: I choose to believe that the the conservative wave, uh, if you want to call it the the turning from the uh, the '60s and '70s, that sort of two decade answer mm-hmm. to uh, the, the the liberal ascendance of the '60s and '70s, I think that was going to happen. Probably nobody other than Slick Willie who could triangulate and and charm people. Plus, uh, enable assist from Ross Perot to drain off some of the the Republican vote. I I don't know if anybody could have done it, not even Mario
2: Cuomo. Believe believe me, as a young guy working for the then president, George Herbert Walker Bush, I very much remember Ross Perot and Bill Clinton (laughs) and my nightmares of that era. (laughs) Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Wilson. That's odoo.com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. We were talking a little bit about, you know, he he was this guy, this enormously gifted rhetorical baseline, this persuasion that was sort of the the centerpiece of a lot of his his political work. The New York Republican Party has been evolving much like the rest of the National Republican Party. Like when I was there working for Giuliani, it was still a sort of Pataki-ish country club Republicans by and large. Talk to folks a little bit about how profoundly the GOP in New York has evolved since Cuomo's era, certainly. And since, you know, in, in the post-Bloomberg, post-Giuliani era, how radically it's altered.
1: Well, yeah, it, it has been migrating in the direction of the Republican Party generally. So the days of those country club Republicans, um, somebody like a George Pataki, frankly, who qualifies, you know, he's got the Yale degree to prove it, uh, w- where they they would pick certain issues. They were environmentalists, you know, they, they would serve miles and miles of Adirondack Forest and so forth. Uh, They were liberal on many issues. You know, everybody talks now about sanctuary city policy. The first person I ever heard talk about it was Mayor Rudy Giuliani.
2: That's right.
1: There was a a way in which you could really always uh, default back to the true ideology of New York politics, I would say, is competence in running a big, complex city and state. Uh, and as long as you did that, you know, we elected, you know, 20 years, consecutive mayors, uh, years of Republican mayors of New York City, uh, two for, for Rudy Giuliani, three for Mike Bloomberg. And they did just fine in the pollings and everything else. Um. So but but you had to be reasonable and you had to execute and you had to uh, govern responsibly, meaning not try and force ideologies down the throats of voters who clearly wanted to go in a different direction. So. You know, with the exception, the notable exception of the death penalty, uh, Republicans governed like centrist Democrats Mm -hmm. and Democrats like centrist Republicans. And 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 things did start to take a turn as it became more polarized nationally, culminating, of course, with New Yorker Donald Trump. A lot of that really they took it on the chin, the Republican Party in New York. They've got almost nothing going on. They haven't won a statewide election since 2002. So we're going on a generation now of uh, kind of being out in the wilderness, so to speak. And that is a choice, you know, that's that's the flip side of the Republican ascendants elsewhere in the country, is that they made the brand toxic for middle-of-the-road and New Yorkers and moderate Democrats. They look at that R and they just say, nope, not going to do it.
2: And, and as for statewide races, as you well know, about 65% of the vote is within about 75 miles of New York City. That brand of Republicanism that has risen up in the Trump era, I mean, it is, without without the Democrats failing on redistricting this last year, or this last cycle, um, I think it would be a, be a very different congressional map because it's very hard to find enough communities in New York with that hard MAGA edge now the, to meet the MAGA elected officials where they are. You know, as somebody said to me the other day, it's like, Get north of the New York Metro area, and there are parts of the state that are very, very red. It's like ice cold Alabama, but it is difficult to to achieve that without a lot of redistricting mojo up there.
1: They squeezed everything they could, you know. I mean, and both parties are guilty of this. They they did the best with the maps that they had, um, but now I think there there. I think we're in for a real change. I mean, they they caught a couple of lucky breaks. I won't bore your listeners with it, but. Um, they, got some lucky breaks and some favorable rulings last year. And they squeezed out four seats that they, you know, two or three of them, they kind of weren't entitled to. And one of them was George Santos. So (laughs) so, so they weren't really even able to fully capitalize on on the lucky breaks that they got. They have some good candidates. Mike Lawler's a strong guy. You know, D'Esposito, these are these are talented young politicians. They're going to do the best they can. They've been trying to sort of migrate to some sort of a place where they can win these Biden districts. Uh, it's, it's there. They're in for a world of hurt though. If they, um, if they can't find better district lines and, uh, we're on the verge of a, a court decision that might throw the whole thing up in the air. And if they get, uh, really tough lines, that four seat margin in the house, that New York provided, uh, it could shrink to one, two or zero.
2: Well, speaking of George Santos, I mean, uh, in the in the history of colorful characters coming out of the new york metro area he has got to be right up there in the top ten
1: well you know the the, the thing that is really singular Rick I wrote a column about this is that unlike his predecessors and you know on average since 2010 New york has had a, a member of Congress resign on average about every 24 months so we're on a roll <laughs> That's here. true Republicans and Democrats well, you know we, we, we we've had you know one guy who was like the the, the tickling congressman who was living with five of his <laughs> Staffers in a townhouse, a married guy uh, who got hit with uh, harassment charges. He resigned. We had Anthony Weiner, who everybody knows about. We had Michael Grimm, a former FBI agent who uh, committed felony tax evasion. We had Christopher Collins, who was caught on camera doing insider trading, and he resigned. The point is they all resigned. George Santos, you know, he would have just been number six. You know, it's about, you know, the the clock was ticking. It was his turn. Twenty four months have gone by. Uh, and he decided to force an expulsion, which was, you know, frankly, you'll appreciate this. This was really, in some ways, a local decision. The local Republicans figured they'd have a better chance holding onto the seat in a special election than letting the Republicans, the regular cycle, roll around with Biden at the top of the ticket because it was a Biden district. So they I think they let their colleagues in D.C. know it's like, yeah, look, locally, we want this guy out today, not not next year. So. So uh so there you have it.
2: Smart though. Very, that's very smart of them. You know, I th- I think I don't think we've seen the last of him yet. He's going to become some sort of like uh, you know, scammy weird re- post-republican influencer or something, who knows.
1: You can get him to do a cameo for 200 bucks if you want to <laughs> do some gags for a Christmas present, Rick.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I don't know if my fiance would say this is a good gift. I think she might have, have objections to that one. So Going back to Cuomo for a second, I had another note here. So he had two very, has two very prominent sons. Andrew, it looked like you were about to see a real dynastic kind of thing happen with him. Talk a little bit about where Andrew Cuomo is now and what he's planning on doing. And is, you hear rumblings all the time about him coming back.
1: Well, he, look, he's not done yet. I can tell you that. I mean, I've talked with him personally. He's not done yet. He thinks there's a path back for him. I'm not so sure about that, but he's he's probing. There's been some good reporting about some mysterious poll going around asking if people would vote for Andrew Cuomo for New York City mayor. You can't confirm who's paying for the poll, but I'm sure he read those those reports with great interest. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been showing up in churches, um, you know, black Protestant churches, which Catholic Andrew Cuomo doesn't necessarily go to. Uh, look, looking for votes or a redemption <laughs> of some kind. So he's clearly intrigued and interested I I can also tell you, because I talk not only with him, but with some of the the people around him, they're very frustrated by the current leadership, the migrant crisis, which is a global phenomenon. I I haven't seen anybody anywhere in this who can claim that they've mastered it, but they think that uh, he would have handled it very differently. And I guess I would have to agree. If you look at what he did during the pandemic, that is strong leadership. Um, And we have a very different, more collaborative style now, which, you know, There are fewer bruised feelings, but there's also, you know, tens of thousands of migrants bottled up in New York City and nobody else in the rest of the state will take them. And that's that's unthinkable in in an Andrew Cuomo world. I mean, he would have called up all of those county executives and said, you can blame me if you want, but you're taking some migrants and they're coming tomorrow. You know, I mean, it would have been it would have been just that simple.
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem like Eric Adams has covered himself in glory on the uh, on the migrant crisis.
1: Well, you know, he's the only one who's who who stepped up. And, you know, as you know, in politics, sometimes there's a thin line between taking responsibility and taking blame. So (laughs) he, he, He took responsibility. Meanwhile, I can't I can't point to any speech or press conference of Chuck Schumer talking about the migrant crisis. Right. And so uh the polls come out and not surprisingly uh Schumer's got great favorability ratings and Adams not so much
2: look Cuomo's name ID obviously is is stratospheric it's it's oh, it's very high has he as has there been enough breathing space from the scandals to to for him to re, to run for office again or is that or you think it's still too close
1: Personally, I don't think so. For for two reasons. One is there are still some suits that are pending against him. There's some civil litigation still out there. Um, And secondly, he has wanted to answer that civil litigation by really kind of uh, putting pressure on some of his accusers. He wants to still vindicate himself and demonstrate that the charges, in his opinion, were baseless from the beginning. And so he's got a very aggressive, very good attorney named Rita Glavin, who is putting these ladies through their paces. I mean, you know, when it's time to come in for a deposition, they're getting hammered, you know. And so it's, it's hard to to move past it if, if the central figure, Andrew Cuomo, has not moved past it. Um, so I think that's going to that's gonna be a challenge for him. I also think that if you're waiting to make the argument that, gee, New York's falling apart and you need me, Well, New York's always falling apart, you know, (laughs) if if there's a day that ends in a Y, there's some crisis happening in New York. So um, I think that in itself is not necessarily going to make him a a singular figure. Uh, There's always a crisis. And so it's only a question of who's going to help us muddle through. So, you know, we'll we'll see. He's still looking for a path back. He's a cautious guy. He doesn't Mm -hmm. you know, he he doesn't do this lightly. And if he decides to step forward, it's only because they've really looked at the numbers up, down, and sideways and concluded that he's got a path to the top.
2: Yeah, I don't know him personally, but I always had that impression that he was very methodical and very much of a planner and a sort of goals and metrics, timeline, schedules kind of guy when it comes to, came to his own personal politics. He
1: he wants to be drafted. I mean, that's the bottom line is he wants to be right. drafted. He wants people to come to say – you know what, let's let the past be the past. We need you now. We need your skills. We need an SOB to sort of uh, put, put, put the state back in order. Uh, I'm just not sure people feel that way. That's 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 the question on the table.
2: Yeah, that, that is it. I mean, there would be an argument you would say that he's the kind of candidate who runs and says, you know, I, I, I may be a son of a bitch, but I'll be your son of a bitch.
1: That literally was his, his appeal, yes.
2: And it's funny because that was sort of the Rudy argument for a long time. Well, when when he ran and when I when I helped read his campaigns, that was certainly the center of it. Like, yeah, I'm the tough motherfucker. I'm going to take care of business. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to make all the trains run on time and keep the streets clean. I may be a terrible human being, but that's what I'm going to do. There is an appeal to that in the psychology of New York voters.
1: No, no, no question about it. I mean, but see now the X factor is that we have our first woman governor uh, who was in lieutenant governor. Right. And so we just got a little taste of it. I watched it. I moderated one of the debates between Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin Mm -hmm. that that tough guy approach. You know, you got to be very careful, especially in front of a TV camera, if you want to use that against a woman opponent. Mm -hmm. Um, And Lee Zeldin, you know, he did about as good as you could do. And he came within six points. So good for him. But um, it's a very tricky business symbolically, because what she has said is the, 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 the era of fighting with my colleagues in government is over where, you know, we, we, you don't have to be a bully. You don't have to uh, fight with people all the time. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, you have an evolving crisis, which a number of people have pointed out would never have happened if she'd been a little bit more confrontational with some of her opponents.
2: I, I mean, I, I, I keep my eye on Lee Zeldin. I think that guy's very ambitious.
1: Smart guy. He did what Republicans never do, which was he campaigned in New York City quite a lot. Yep. Uh, You know, the cards just didn't fall his way. And I think one important thing that he missed was he kept focusing on crime, which is a reliable vote getter for for Republicans. But uh, it turned out in the exit polls, people were actually more concerned about the economy and he didn't he didn't really have much of a policy there. So. You know, a, a couple of tweaks, a little bit better, you know, a little, little bit better approach. And he could, in fact, I think, uh, show Republicans a way to talk to New Yorkers that that we're ready to hear at this point.
2: Yeah. I, like I said, I, I, I've kept my eye on him because I think I think he overperformed by a, a, a noticeable degree uh, in, a, in a race where he should have been blown out.
1: Exactly right.
2: Speaking of New York, I love the city and I love its people. And I'm seeing a side of it right now that I hadn't seen a lot in the past, and that is this rising anti-Semitism you're seeing on the streets of New York, especially in the wake of the Hamas invasion or the Hamas attack on Israel and the, the subsequent war. How do you how do you read that situation right now? Is this something? I mean, was it always latent, or we just were we just ignoring it? Is it, Has it always been out there? I just I, it's like it's so disappointing on one level.
1: Right. Oh, oh, like a lot of people, Rick, I am shocked. I, I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. this is not a hypothetical question, you know? Yeah, like uh, you, you let this get out of control and it can be- go back to 1991 where you literally have rioting in the streets. So I, I, am, I am shocked. Now, what I am seeing that I think we should all maybe try and gather a little bit more evidence, but I'm pretty confident about this. They're saying that on TikTok, Rick, there are like something like 54 pro-Palestinian and even pro-Hamas messages for every one pro-Israel one. Now, I'm thinking that whoever's running the algorithm back in Beijing or Wuhan or wherever it's coming from Mm -hmm. very easily just decide, let's just set the country against itself and let's do a little tweak in the algorithm. Because these young people, it's so vehement, it's so quick, and it is—it's it, happening in channels that you and I don't watch.
2: I'm 60 years old, Errol. I don't see any of that stuff, you
1: know. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't. I don't spend time on that. I mean, no. Who's got time? for that? But you know who does have time for it? Our kids and our grandkids, yep. right? So, mm-hmm. so, and they're all their time on it. I mean, people are—kids are spending more time on TikTok than all the other streaming platforms combined. It's crazy. And we don't know who truly owns and controls it. We don't know what the algorithm is doing, but if we in the United States um, had access to one third of all the Chinese teenagers, it would be criminally irresponsible if we didn't start putting in a little messaging and tweaking algorithms to say, Mm -hmm. you know what, dictation sucks and maybe your society needs some change. You need freedom,
2: not oppression or what have you. Yeah.
1: And I think that that is what is driving this. Now, the other side of me, you know, I got a whole shelf of books here. I'm sure you do, too. We know anti-Semitism is millennia old, right? So
2: it is always it is always with us. How does it reproduce so
1: quickly? And I'm thinking I, I, I gotta I gotta blame social media a little bit.
2: There's nothing else in our society that spreads things like the blood libel. People aren't they don't hear that in public. They don't see that in school. Their friends aren't talking about it. But the fact that it has suddenly been repurposed, packaged in a in a TikTok feed, it's just so striking how how quickly that virus has spread.
1: And, you know, the, old, the older folks are going back to the old playbook where you would tamp down, you know, there'd be, you know, I don't know, some kind of anti-Semitic uh, uh, resolution being debated in the United Nations, and you would just summon everybody and you stand shoulder to shoulder and you condemn it, and then that's the end of it. Right. This is, this is a different kind of an animal. It's trickier, it's sure more is. subtle. Uh, it's happening on platforms where us older, re, quote-unquote, responsible people... Are, are, are unwelcome or unknown, <laughs> so we have no juice, we have no clout. I am concerned. I just, I don't, I don't have an answer. I think some of this has to be people just need a lot more information, not a little bit, a lot. I've talked with local politicians who are out here calling for a ceasefire and so forth, and I said, you know, I haven't said very much about this. I've only been to Israel three times. I've been to the West Bank once. I was near the fence of Gaza. I don't feel like I know enough to be, you know, spouting off. And these are people who have never been there. And they're, they're leading marches, and they're talking trash, and they're comparing the situation to Jim Crow. And I'm like, by the way, you don't know anything about that either.
2: Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Let, let's not minimize our own bad history. Well, Errol, thank you so much for joining me today on The Enemies List. I really appreciate your time today. I will look you up next time I'm back in New York City. And uh, if I don't talk to you before then, have a Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll see you again soon.
1: Same to you, Rick. Thanks very much.
2: Thanks, man. Abortion is one of the most complex and terrible issues in American society. And as a former Republican, I was never a social conservative. I was never a a God Squad guy. But I will say this. I always held in my mind the two sort of, uh, what I thought was the American tension about it. Abortion is not a comfortable subject for anybody. But neither is an unlimited restriction set on abortion. And two American presidents caught it right in the, in the sort of weird heart of the matter. George H.W. Bush, my old boss, in the beginning of time, said, you know, I'm pro-life, but I believe in, in exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. America was there with him. Bill Clinton said, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, and America was there with him. And as much as people disliked Roe versus Wade as as law... It had become part of the American fabric. Now, with the Dobbs decision, the Republican Party has taken tremendous damage over the years. And that damage politically is one thing. But what we're seeing now is that in red states, uh, people like Ken Paxton and the Texas Supreme Court have given us what they really intend. And that is that they intend that women who have pregnancies that will result in either a child which will not survive or will result in the loss of their fertility or in the loss of their life can fuck off. I know this is a couple days late, but the Kate Cox case in Texas has been one I've really been thinking about a lot. And watching Ken Paxton, the corrupt criminal attorney general of Texas and the Texas Supreme Court, tell a woman who has been diagnosed carrying a child with trisomy X that under Texas abortion law, she cannot receive an abortion tells you how deeply, deeply evil these men are. And look, folks, I'll I'll, I'll tell you, I was never a God Squad guy, but I hold two tensions in my my heart about abortion, too. One is, I, I believe that life is a sacred thing. The second part is, I believe that people have their own moral judgments and their own moral imperatives. And the third thing is, I think government should say the fuck out of people's business. That's all on its head when it comes to the Texas Supreme Court and Ken Paxton in Texas. And they are deeply, deeply on the Enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the Enemies list.